So if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 9. We are finishing these next couple weeks our journey through the book of Daniel. And we are going to be tackling the last eight verses together as we reconnect with our favorite exile, God's faithful witness in Babylon, the prophet Daniel. And if you were with us last week, uh, we left Daniel. He was deep in prayer in sackcloth and ashes. He's an old man at this point, probably in his 90s. And he yearns to see the end of his people's banishment there in far-off Iraq. And the prophet Jeremiah had assured them that their stay in foreign lands would last only 70 years. But as Daniel's praying and reflecting and looking back, he, he remembers what landed them there in exile in the first place. It was their own faithlessness and idolatry. It was the way they abused their power, the, the injustice that they practiced in their interactions with one another. The, the 70 years might be drawing to a close, but Daniel still recognizes the same stubborn and unrepentant heart in himself and his people that had caused all this mess in the first place. And so last week we looked at this prayer where he stands up as a representative of his people and he starts to lead them in that act of repentance and turning away from their evil and back to God. He pleads for mercy. He pleads that God would reestablish a relationship, a covenant of grace with his wayward people, that he would restore biblical worship so that they might have this open door once again to come to God and to, to glorify him in spirit and in truth. And Daniel's starting to get this sense that he might live to see the end of those 70 years and he really wants to see this joyful exodus back home. But as the years have gone on, his desire has grown. He wants to see more than political change, more than a social restoration. He's praying for a sea change of grace that would leave them utterly changed. He cries out, don't simply change our situation, God, but wash us clean, make us new. He's been pouring over Jeremiah, and he says, you said you were going to make a new covenant where you would write your will, your law on our hearts, and we would know you, and we would walk with you, and you'd wash us clean, that you would enable us to live and to love as your true children. So God, it's been nearly 70 years. Is it time? My journey's almost over. Will I get to see the arrival of your grace? So that's where we've been. And now our story picks up here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. And while I, Daniel, was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel... And presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. 
He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel, heaven's messenger, shows up to to comfort Daniel and to answer his question. And quick side note, if you've ever doubted that God hears your prayers, look how quickly the Lord responds and, and responds positively to the cries of a repentant heart. Daniel asks for insight. He asks for God to re-engage with his faithless but contrite people. And instantly, the Lord responds. And if you ever thought it was about the words you said or the how you said it, take heart that before dear God is even on the lips of Daniel, God has called up Gabriel and said, go, reveal my love, reveal my power. Gabriel says, you are greatly loved. Isn't that what we yearn to hear in the wake of our confession? Often when I acknowledge my weakness, my brokenness, my my sin, it, it gets me down. I think I'm a failure. How could anyone accept me like this, much less embrace me. And in kind of contradiction of that condemnation, God says, you are precious to me. I cherish you, regardless of where you've been or what you've done. Like a loving, devoted parent, I want to hold you close to my heart. I won't leave you as you are, but I love you nonetheless. Talk about a truth that could reshape our psyche, that could redraw our mental map. God loves us, and that changes everything. But Gabriel's here to answer Daniel's question. And the prophet, like I said, he wants to know, is it time? Is it really the end of our exile? Is it really the moment when God's grace arrives? Is God's kind of paradigm-changing salvation really breaking out? Will I live to see it? Tell me, Gabe, is 70 the magic number or not? And this essentially is the answer that Gabriel will bring from the Lord Is it really 70 years? Yes and no. You need to start thinking bigger, Daniel. Think 70 times seven years. Ugh. A few months back, my uh, wife's younger brother, David, joined us on a Sunday morning. And David is my kid's fun uncle. David's in his early 30s. He's single. He lives in the beautiful city of Santa Cruz, California. He's the head of IT at a local college there. He also does IT for the famed Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. David is an absolutely wonderful 
person. He's fascinating to me. I'm a big fan of my brother-in-law. He has led me into many painful adventures uh, because he has the highest spice tolerance of anyone I've ever met. And so many a night I've ended where he has a smile on his face and my stomach is in knots trying to process an insane amount of pepper oil. I'm all red and sweating. My face is burning. And he's quietly chuckling. Like my wife, uh, he is playful and fun-loving and mischievous and a bit on the quiet side. And David loves games. He loves puzzles. He loves story. He loves complexity. He is... Uh, someone that my kids will forever adore because he inaugurated them in the ways of, of video games, both classic and modern. And so we're a huge fan, but come Christmas time, David is really hard to buy gifts for. We've got him hot sauce before, we've gotten him big books, we've gotten him little bits of electronic equipment to tinker with, but lately Brianna has resorted to getting him increasingly complex kind of tactile puzzles or, or puzzle boxes over the years. And so now one of my new Christmas traditions is to quietly sit and watch my brother-in-law process a puzzle box. And we got him one, it's a little on the pricey side one year, and I sat, watched him and he sat down and he solved it. In like a matter of minutes. And I, um, I was perplexed because it seemed too easy. It seemed inelegant. It seemed out of step with the puzzle's design. And I remember challenging David on the solution. And he said something that stuck with me. He said, in effect, well, I discover, discovered one possible way to solve this puzzle. But it may not be the solution that the designers intended. So tomorrow I'm going to reset it and rework the problem again to see if there is a more fitting solution. Well, I tell you this story because we're about to wade into what is known as Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And it is one of scripture's most famous and fascinating puzzle boxes. And... Jews and Christians for millennia, for generations, have been puzzling over these verses and have proposed a variety of solutions, most in contradiction with one another, of how we are to understand it. They rarely agree, and, and recently, in recent decades, there have been readings that have been proposed that would be unrecognizable to any kind of generations that came before and the whole section of scripture reminds me of what Churchill said about the Soviet Union. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. Now, such complexity and perplexity shouldn't cause us to shy away from this passage, though I was tempted this week to just like read the Lord's Prayer over and over again from the stage instead of doing this. Because... Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. All scripture, the whole canon, 
Not just the teachings of Jesus, even the crazy parts of Daniel are useful and helpful and meaningful for us on our ordinary journeys of faith. But such complexity and perplexity should also give us pause and (laughs) prompt us to embrace humility. I was reminded of this, too, because I stumbled upon, um, there's a church father, Jerome. He's from the Balkans. He was the first guy to translate the scriptures into Latin, and he was rarely shy to share his mind. But in his commentary on Daniel, he gets to this section, and he wrote this, because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above the other, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. He was unwilling to come out strongly because he was saying no to pride and saying, you know what? We don't know. I don't know. But I think the Spirit can teach us. So here's the options. Figure it out. As my brother-in-law would say, many may have found a solution, a possible way to solve this puzzle, but there is ultimately an answer that the designer intended. And I don't believe God wrote these words to stump his people. Indeed, this divine communication was received by Daniel as a great word of encouragement. The Lord's intention is not to conceal, but to reveal. And the more that I've poured over this passage, the more I've been struck by its beauty and its power. And I won't claim to have solved it, but with some fear and trembling and a heavy dose of humility, I'm going to take a different, different tack from Jerome and just kind of give you what I think is, from my perspective, the best reading of the text, the thing that is most faithful what I see as the designer's intent. I also feel there's some historical weight here because while it's, there's diversity of opinions, this is kind of the consensus reading of the early church, how they received this prophecy. So that's a lot of preamble, but let's Get into it. Verse 24. Seventy sevens, 70 weeks, are decreed for your people, are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy sevens. The first thing to know kind of about this puzzling prophecy is that the numbers are actually important. They alert us to the overall message of this passage. What that means is their actual numerical value is secondary to their symbolic meaning secondary, but not, it's not superfluous. It's, I'm not saying we're not dealing with real numbers here, but the math is subordinate to the message. So let me try to explain. In, in Scripture, the number seven and 70 represents fullness and completion. 
And when you marry those two numbers together, when you multiply 70 by 7, they speak of an ultimate incompleteness. Just think about Jesus' dialogue with Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. Peter wants to know, as a, a follower of Christ, what is his, his full responsibility to someone who has wounded him and wronged him? Must he forgive seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And the ultimate incompleteness. Keep on forgiving indefinitely because God in Christ has forgiven you. There's a weight to these numbers that's beyond their literal value. The, the invitation is not to tally and to calculate 490 times of forgiveness. It's to recognize that the ultimate end point of your forgiveness is as deep as the Lord's grace. And the ultimate end point of grace is actually exactly what is in view in this passage. There's even more kind of embedded message in these numbers than might first appear. A seven or a week is what some translations put it, uh, is what the Old Testament refers to as a Sabbath cycle. This is kind of how the Lord has structured time for us. It's a fundamental rhythm for humanity. Six days of creation, one day of divine rest. Six days of labor, one day of inactivity. This kind of rhythm is so important to the Lord that one of the Ten Commandments is to charge God's people to keep Sabbath, to keep this rhythm. And what's true of days is also true of years. Israelite farmers were invited to plant and till the soil and harvest and, and labor in the land for six years. But on the seventh year, God said, let the land rest. Let it lie fallow. Live off the natural produce. And indeed, one of the reasons God says you ended up in exile in the first place is you never gave the land its rest. So for me to let the land recover, I had to kick you off of it. And now, you start to compile all these sevens. There's another thing going on in Scripture. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 25. Seven cycles of seven years is what's called a, there's this thing called a jubilee. It's a grand restoration and it's heralded by the trumpet. So on the 50th year, after 49 years, trumpets would blast and they would, you'd hear the sound resounding across the land and a jubilee would be announced. And that meant that all lands reverted to their ancestral owners. All debts were canceled and all slaves were free. This was God's design to, to prevent generations of entrenched brokenness and these kind of massive inequalities of wealth and welfare. So Daniel's been laser-focused on 70 years of exile, right? There's these 10 
Sabbath cycles that would allow the land to rest. And Gabriel's now trying to lift his eyes to a further horizon. And he says, God's doing something even bigger. Look past the 70 years of exile to this 70 times seven years, these 10 cycles of Jubilee, another kind of full set. So basically, here's the message. God wants his beloved ones to know that he is planning a great jubilee in which God's covenant with his people will be restored. All their debts will be forgiven. They will be rescued from their slavery. This not time, not to Babylon, but to their own wickedness and brokenness and injustice. And he says it'll take some time 490 years, give or take, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 490 years until the great jubilee, until the inauguration of that new covenant, that new status quo that Jeremiah promised. He says, take heart, Daniel. God's not only going to end your exile in Babylon. He's got something even grander in the works. It'll take a while, but God once and for all will free his people from their bondage to evil, sin, and death, and he will make all things new. This is the message of this prophecy from 30,000 feet. A great jubilee is coming. So if you don't get anything, get that. But then we get further detail of this kind of next chapter in, in our salvation history as God subdivides this big chunk of time into three smaller periods of time, and we're going to look at each in turn as we finish out the chapter. So Gabriel presents 70 weeks, 70 sevens, and then cuts them down into these three parts, and it's the first seven sevens, then there's 62 sevens, and then there's a climactic seven. So if you're doing math, seven plus 62 plus one, 70 sevens until the great jubilee. And let's look at the first one here. The first seven sevens that he talks about are all about hope returning. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. This first period of time is relatively easy to wrap our minds around. It's 49 years. It's less than a human lifespan. Someone might reasonably expect to live to see its end. It's also one jubilee cycle if you're looking at it through the lens of the Old Testament. So when these 49 years draw to a close, God's people should experience, should expect to experience the first taste of what God's ultimate rescue and renewal will be like. This is the opening kind of gamut in God's great redemption story. 
So you can summarize this first time period with those simple words, hope returns. And then God tries to locate this onto the, the timeline of human history. He gives you two dates. He says, from the going out of the word to the rising up of, a, of an anointed prince, a, a lowercase m, Messiah, who will bring this about. And it's confusing and challenging and people debate, but I, I think that word to go out is not some royal decree, but it's actually a heavenly one. It's where we started this series. It was the letter that God sent to the exiles as they were settling into Babylon, and he promised them, he said, in Jeremiah 29, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God sends this word to his exiles in Babylon. And that letter arrives at about 487 BC. And about 49 years later, the Persian emperor Cyrus issues an edict that permits 50,000 Jews to return to their native land and to begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It's the end of their 70 years of exile. So you could argue that the anointed prince, that lowercase m, Messiah, could be Cyrus, the king who allows them to go home. Or it could be, a case could be made for the two leaders of the Jews at the time, either their governor, Zerubbabel, or the high priest, Joshua. But it doesn't really matter because they're all contemporaries. It's all the same timetable. Hope returns. Their exile is over. Daniel will live to see this first taste of Jubilee, but they're still in a deeper exile to evil, sin, and death. So God's redemption plan must march on. So then we get to that second chunk, which is the 62 sevens, and it's a little bit more unwieldy. It's 400-something years. This is a relatively extended period. It spans generations. And all we know is that it begins with the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, which I don't know when you exactly start that timer. And it goes until the appearing of an anointed one, another Messiah, this time the Messiah with a capital M. And all that Daniel is told that in this long period, Jerusalem will be rebuilt with squares and a moat. I think that means community life and and economic vitality returns. They have some sense of, of security, but we hear it will also be a troubled time. They'll be home, they'll be in the land, they'll be worshiping God in his temple, but they'll still be experiencing hardship and suffering and the domination of their stronger neighbors. In that middle chunk, life goes on, but with distress. And what we know most about that period is how it ends. We hear of the clouds gathering as the climactic arrival of God's great jubilee is just around the corner. And here's what we read in verse 26. After 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off 
and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is God's great plan of redemption. This is how he'll save his people from their sins. It all culminates with the appearance and then the cutting off of a Messiah, a long-expected figure who will unexpectedly die and have nothing to show for the pivotal role that he plays in God's great rescue and renewal. And it says, close on the heels of his death, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will again lie in ruins. Invaders and conquerors will flood the city and desecrate God's house, and it will be deemed uninhabitable for his holy presence. Friends, when the early church read these verses, they said, guys, this is the story of Jesus. And I can't help but think of Jesus after his resurrection when he's walking the road to Emmaus with his disciples and and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Daniel, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures and the things that were concerning himself. A bit more than 400 odd years after the reestablishment of Jerusalem, Jesus appears as a baby in the temple courts to be dedicated. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who shows up and declares, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It is Jesus who will be cut off, crucified on a Roman cross so that he might give his life in ransom, that he might bring back through his self-giving love God's lost and scattered and sin-sick children to bring them home. It is Jesus who establishes a new covenant By the shedding of its blood, it is Jesus who arrives on the scene to announce a great jubilee. Remember Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord, this is the very beginning of his ministry. He stands up in the synagogue and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in that moment when all eyes are locked onto him and they're stunned by his words, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The great jubilee is here. It is Jesus who finishes transgression, who puts an end to sin, who atones for iniquity, who brings in everlasting righteousness. It is Jesus who fulfills every divine vision and vindicates all of the prophets. It is Jesus who anoints a most holy place. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
Gospel of Mark, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. You might say Jesus didn't destroy the Jerusalem temple. The Romans did. But he's talking about something different, a temple not made with human hands. The apostle Paul got it. That's why he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit now dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You remember in the Gospels when Jesus breathes his last, the curtain in the temple tears from top to bottom. And the Jews that saw it did not celebrate. They grieved because it was an omen of judgment. It was a sign that that house was no longer suitable for God's holy presence. It had become desolate. In Scripture, what what makes desolate is sin and rebellion and profane bloodshed. And at that moment, outside of the walls of the city, God's anointed one was slaughtered. He was God's promised prince, but his own people, in collusion with the Romans, murdered him. And their rebellious rejection of God's Messiah paved the way for the city and the the temple's ultimate destruction. And then the passage ends by kind of articulating a little bit more about this final climactic seven. It says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. This is the trickiest part of the prophecy, and I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. But God's great jubilee does culminate with Jesus making a strong covenant with us. He does once and for all put an end to sacrifice and offering and transforming for us what is this act of worship. We no longer have to worship God in a building halfway across the world because God is now accessible to us through the reconciling work of Jesus. Christ in us, our hope of glory. You can know Jesus personally. He can make his home with you and you can make your home with him. He stands at your door And he knocks. All you have to do is receive him. Say yes to his hospitality. And it seems that the last piece here, all this kind of weird talk about abominations and a desolator, the last piece is this, that the desolator, the opponents of God and his plan, in his plan of rescue, they'll get their comeuppance. Justice will be served, wrongs will be righted, and evil will be banished from God's world. Some read that cryptic statement as speaking of some reckoning at the end of history. Others read it as God dealing with the Romans who sacked and destroyed the Jerusalem temple. I think it might be both. But don't miss the message. Jesus 
is the long-awaited Messiah who ushers in a great jubilee. And his work has already started. Even now, your exile can end. But we do still wait for a final trumpet blast. We see that at the end of the story. But for those of us who know Jesus, that trumpet blast is not a trumpet of judgment. It is a trumpet of jubilee. It's the final culmination of God's rescue and renewal. It's the announcement, the the bringing into reality this new covenant of love, the forgiveness of sins, the breaking of our bonds. It opens the door for us to have a forever home in God's inheritance. To which I say, amen and amen. So this is a lot. Your brain might hurt. Mine does. (laughs) I'm not sure if I've solved the puzzle properly. And I'm not sure how I would have responded if I were Daniel receiving this. He was hoping that after 70 long years, it would all be done. But he was thinking too small. When God frees us, he looks to free us completely. He's not simply content to get his people back on the land of their inheritance. God wanted to reconcile them back to himself. It was a heavy lift that he would take on himself. And he did it by dying on a cross. He did it by raising from the dead. He dealt with our brokenness and our rebellion once and for all. And it is truly mind-blowing. But that is what we hear. Rescue coming from God himself to make us new and to free us. The story of Daniel keeps reminding me that my prayers are too small. God, rescue me. I don't want to be stuck in this dead-end job. God, deliver me from this going-nowhere dysfunctional relationship. God, fix this annoying habit that I can't seem to shake. God, heal my indigestion. God, provide a little bit more because money is tight and I don't want to have to cancel any of my streaming services. We say, Lord, rescue us seven times. Jesus says, dearly beloved, how about instead I rescue you 70 times seven? How about I rescue you completely I've not come to make you marginally better, marginally fitter, marginally kinder or wiser. I've come to free you from evil, sin, and death and make you wholly new. Please allow me to do so. Get caught up in the Messiah's great jubilee. What do we hear at the end from our Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame, conquered, and sat with my father on his throne. Gospel hospitality. That's the message through and through. 70 weeks, 490 years. The great plan of salvation is that through an act of costly, self-giving love, we get to be welcomed in as God's honored guests. But we have to receive it. We have to let him wash us clean. We can't try... We can't refuse to let the Lord change us. He loves us as we are, but he wants to make us wholly new. But that's what he's here for. One more thing from Revelation, my favorite verse in all of Scripture. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Get caught up in the Messiah's great jubilee. We might not fully understand it. We can't do all the math. We might be getting some of the prophecy wrong, but the, the message is clear. God's grace changes everything. Receive it and let it change you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, my mind is too small sometimes. <laughs> and your grace is so big. I'm not going to pretend to say I fully understand. God, I know my condition. That I'm a broken, limited human who wounds others and is selfish and is desperately in need of your rescue. And I look at my life and sometimes my brokenness, it feels so hopeless But then I hear that trumpet sound and that grace pronounced. And you say, I don't, you don't have to fully get it, but I'll make it right. I'll pay the cost. I'll wash you clean. I will free you. So God, I say yes. May the people in this room say yes. And may we... Let this good news go deep into our heart and may we share it with our community. Our brokenness, the pain we see all around us, it does not have to define us. It does not have the final say on our future. You are making all things new. Do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.